Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Looking for a new high-end mascara without breaking the bank? The new L'Oreal Paris Panorama Mascara gives you a high-end lash look in a premium gold luxe packaging. It's all about panoramic volume and fully fanned-out lashes. With its tapered brush, the new Panorama Mascara catches every single lash, giving you the false lash look without any of the hassle. Say goodbye to clumps and flakes, because this mascara is specially formulated to resist them all day with up to 24-hour wear. And the best part? It performs better than Luxe mascaras at only a fraction of the cost. You can buy Panorama Mascara on Amazon today. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Senior Editor. Hi, everybody. So, Mara, I'm really excited about our guest today. It's Ron Carlovati, who is the head writer of Days, who you worked with when he was the head scribe at GH. It's funny, when we heard that Ron was coming to Days, it just really seemed like the right choice. You know, he's a good fit for that show because he really likes to bring a fun element to his canvases, and I feel Days totally falls into that wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And really, so far, it's been great. I love how he has really incorporated a lot of history, how he's woven actors in and out, like Sammy and Nicole, and recently we saw Mimi. Um, You know, he's done some fun nods to history, and he's really brought the show to a new level. In fact, winning them three huge Emmys back in April. Never mind the ones for the acting. Right. Now, you know, it really is interesting how certain head writers just seem to be the right fit for a particular show at a particular time. I think Ron was also the right fit at the time that he came to General Hospital. And there was a lot that was incredibly successful about his time there. Uh, But one of his first moves there was to focus back on the vets. And he brought back an amazing array of past favorites very quickly and kind of a steady stream of them. And, you know, which to beat the same drum that we always talk about is what I think you and I both agree is the quickest route to getting lapsed viewers to be intrigued enough to tune back in. Oh, for sure. And, you know, I also think it's good to switch up the writers. I mean, I do think that sometimes stories can get a bit stale or you can feel that the writer has burnout and you just need to infuse the show with some fresh blood. You know, as I say that, though, it's funny because the one thing that I hear from you know, fans and industry people is why do the same people keep getting these jobs? And, you know, that we don't really see that many new faces or names that come in to fill these top positions. But I feel, you know, we're just at a point where there isn't time for new people who have never done daytime before to just jump in and fall into the rhythm because the pace is just too quick. You need someone who has a lot of experience. Yeah. One thing, you know, I have learned in the time that I have been working at this magazine, which is coming up on 20 years, is that I have incredible sympathy for head writers of these shows. You know, even ones whose work I haven't been a particular fan of, it is a darn near next to impossible feat 
to be good at this job all the time or to be great at it all the time. And even the ones that we consider masters of the form, you know, these names from the past that we toss about, like a Claire Labine or a Douglas Marland, it's not like they never told a clunker or two in their day. You know, it's funny you say that. I always wonder if we hold up the past like on a pedestal because, of, you know, when you fell in love with the genre where you may have been in your life when you started watching soaps. And, you know, sometimes I'll watch shows today and I'll say, oh, it's not the same as it used to be in the 80s. And then I'll go on YouTube um, with certain shows and look at some old scenes and I'll think, mm, you know, maybe some of them aren't as great as I really remember. <laughs> That's really funny to me. You know, I feel like I'm more likely when I go back to watch something on YouTube to feel like, oh, my gosh, that was so magical. You know, I would say it would be it, it's an impossible idea, but it would be a fascinating experiment to see what an Agnes Nixon or a Douglas Marland uh, sh- you know, uh, written show would look like in 2018 with all of the budgetary constraints and the time constraints that they, uh, that, you know, that do have an impact on the overall quality of the product, if only for some of the practical reasons, like they could have the whole town at an event when they were writing, which would be nearly impossible today for financial reasons. Um, Let me be clear. I have fallen down YouTube rabbit holes with certain scenes from the past. I mean, I got sucked into a Bow and Hope situation when we were doing one of our day (laughs) specials and like fell in love with them all over again. But when you do go back and you see these weddings that were just so incredible and populated and took days to play out and all the detail and the small scenes that you saw. And like the $20,000 gowns. Oh, yeah. And those. You know, it just makes you marvel at what today's shows are accomplishing. You hear actors talk about 70 pages of dialogue which is just a mind-boggling amount if you really think about it. And then you think about the people who are writing them and churning them out just as quickly. It's an incredibly difficult task to put together these shows today. And, you know, everyone in front of the camera and behind the scenes really deserves so much credit for what they do and how good it really is. You know, it reminds me of something that Wally Kurth said to me. I think he was telling me about getting a round of applause when he finished... um, singing his song at the nurse's ball this year. And he's like, you know, I I was appreciative. He's like, but I think every actor and every crew person deserves a round of applause every time they call cut under the production realities of daytime today. I could not agree more. Um, But, you know, something that we don't really see in the magazine a lot or talk about because we just don't have that perspective is really what goes on in the writer's rooms and in the mind of a head writer. So let's get Ron on the phone and see what he has to say about his soap past and present. Hi, Ron. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Well, let's start at the beginning, Ron. I know the story of what led you to daytime, but it really is one of my favorite stories. So please tell it for our listeners. How did you, how did you land on soaps? Well, how I really got into this is I was working as a lawyer in Washington, D.C., and my boss was a guy who sold his novel he had been secretly writing he sold it overnight uh for like two million dollars and then they made a movie of it um he uh anyway his name is david baldacci and it was uh the the book was absolute power and so he went on to become uh this overnight success and a huge best-selling author and he left the firm, and I sort of went back to writing articles of incorporation and shareholder agreements, and uh, <laughs> it wasn't so exciting. And so, anyway, I had decided to quit my job, and 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 you know, he pursued this dream of writing, and 
Um, not that I thought I was going to like become this like overnight, uh, successful writer the way he did, but he followed something that he really felt passionately about. And I realized I didn't feel passionately about the law and sort of had to do some soul searching and realize something I did feel passionate about was soap operas, <laughs> um, <laughs> and had grown up on ABC soaps with, um, my sister and our babysitter watching all my children and one life to live and general hospital. And, um, and some, you know, and continued watching them, um, all through high school, college, et cetera. And somehow I just felt I could do this. So I, I moved to New York and I lived on everybody's couch, um, for a long time and basically just told everybody that I met that I wanted to be a soap opera writer and, and, You'd be surprised the way it works in New York that, you know, you just start telling your story and you meet somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody and things just kind of start to happen um, if you kind of put it out there. And, um, and then I ran into a guy on the street who I went to high school with and he asked me what I was doing and I told him and he said, oh, I went to college with a guy whose mom had something to do with soap operas. <laughs> His name was John Levine. I'm like, that John, I was like, Levine is in Claire Levine. He goes, yeah, that's his mom. I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm like, this woman is like a soap opera legend. She created Ryan's Hope and writes General Hospital. And, and he said, oh, would you want to talk to her? I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. he, I, he said, well, you know, let me see what I could do. And my friend actually really went out of his way and he, he did call, um, he did call Claire and he called me back and said, okay, she's expecting your call on Monday or something. And, uh, so I did call Claire. I mean, I had been trying to do some writing on my own. I like would just take the episode that I had seen and then like say, I'd, you know, wherever one life to live ended on a Friday and I would try to write a script of like what happened on the Monday, you know, just, uh, as an exercise. And so I spoke to Claire who I can't say enough about. I mean, this woman did not know me from Adam and she was so like warm and encouraging. Uh, I sent her some of my writing. She was very enthusiastic. She said that she would do whatever she could to help me. And, um, and at the time she was, she was had, she was pitching, they were doing the half hour spinoff, which they hadn't decided what that was going to be yet. And, um, Claire was writing a, a show about Ned and Lois that was called heart and soul. And I think at the same time, Wendy rich was pitching the poor Charles show and they went with the poor Charles show and, um, they didn't go with Claire's show, but, at the time she said, Oh, I have all these meetings coming up and, um, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to somebody for you. And she said a lot was happening right at that moment. She said, there's a woman in writer development. She's on maternity leave. Um, Maxine Levinson was about to take over as the executive producer of one life to live. And she said, you know, give me like a couple of weeks and then I might be able to do something for you. So I said, okay. And then I was out for my friend's 30th birthday party. And he said, oh, let's go to this, this bar. 
we went and um this has nothing to do with the story but jack nicholson <laughs> was in there with ashley judd um <laughs> it was this place uh, so that was kind of cool um <laughs> In this, um, it was this Russian vodka bar called Pravda. Uh, Pravda, yes. Um, so I'm there with my friend, a couple of my friends, and some guy taps us and says, oh, I, I, I heard you guys talking. Are you guys lawyers? And I was like, oh, she's a lawyer. Um, and I just quit being a lawyer. I'm trying to be a writer. And he goes, oh, I just quit being a lawyer. Um, I'm trying to be an actor. And I was like, oh, cool. And he said, what kind of writing do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a soap opera writer. And he said, oh, my friend works at a soap opera, One Life to Live. And I was like, you know, this was like my dream job. And I said, oh, wow, what does he do? And he said, oh, he's the writer's assistant. I'm like, oh. So as a matter of fact, he's quitting his job next week. <laughs> I'm like, okay. And he goes, yeah, and I think he's supposed to find somebody to take his place. Oh, good choice in bars. I'm like, am I I on candid camera? (laughs) It was just so surreal after living in New York for like nine months and, and, you know, trying to make some connections and, and all of a sudden this happens. And he said, would you be interested in that job? And I was like, trying to be calm. Like, well, yeah. And I give him my number and, that's kind of the end of it. So I I go home and I'm realizing that Claire Levine had said, you know, call me in like two weeks. And I didn't want to bother this woman because I, you know, she'd been so nice to me and everything. But I was like, I I want to tell her about what's going on. So I call her. I say, Claire, I know I wasn't supposed to call you for two weeks, but I just found a, this writer's assistant job might be available. And she got all excited and she's like, Oh, I'm so glad you called. This is this is this is perfect. Um, uh, let me make a couple of calls. So meanwhile, I kind of sent my resume into this guy. Um, and all of a sudden I get a phone call and it's a producer at one life to live and says, I understand you're interested in, I was at a temp job. So, uh, understand you're interested in, uh, the writer's assistant job. I said, yes, I am. And she said, how soon can you be here for an interview? And I'm like, I'm getting in a cab. Um, <laughs> so, and I sort of hung up, but I actually wasn't sure if it was, did this happen because Claire made a phone call or did this happen because I sent the resume? So, and now I'm like, oh my God, am I going to really call this woman and bother her yet again? And I call and I say, Claire, um, I just got a call. Did you have something to do with this? And she says, yes, I called. Did and you call I from said, a pay okay, phone? I know I called from the this temp job that I was working in a lawyer's office on the Upper East Side, and 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 then I jumped in the cab. <laughs> <laughs> so she said yes, and um, I went, and she she, she kind of warned me. She said, "I think they might." Um, oh, actually, no. That's what the guy that called me. They said they had somebody in mind, right? So I thought, okay, they're just doing a favor for Claire Levine. Um, So I went, I had this interview. I met one of the producers, Robin Goodman. She was super nice to me. We talked. She asked me what I liked about One Life to Live. I told her. I think I passed some kind of test with her because she took me down the hall to meet the head writers at the time, which were Jean Pathnante and Leah Lehman. 
and we talked and we got along really well. And I, I'll never forget. They said, one of them said, look, you're a lawyer and we're not saying that you're going to have to get the coffee, but you're going to have to get the coffee. <laughs> so <laughs> he said, do you, have, do, do you have a problem with that? And I said, no, not at all. And, and so, and they basically did say, look, we have somebody in mind for this job, but you know, Claire recommended you. And so we wanted to interview you, la, la, la. So it went really well, but I still left thinking, okay, they were just being nice. And, and I went back to this temp job and I was there and it was like five or six o'clock and the phone rang and it was Robin Goodman. And she said, you've got the job. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so it was really I, amazing. And so I took the, um, the writer's assistant job. And then the, the little capper of the, just kind of circle back to Claire. Um, so I was in the job for roughly about a month and all of a sudden they announced that the show was getting a new head writer and it was Claire LeBarn. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so this woman who I really didn't know except over the phone and really helped me get the job became my boss after a month that I was there. That's um, crazy. Now, wait, go back. So you're a lawyer. You went to law yeah. school. Your parents are like, oh, our son's a lawyer. And then you're like, yeah, so I'm quitting my job and I'm going to, you know, take my shot in New York City. What did they think? So, okay, that was tricky because look my parents really helped put me through law school and it was a big sacrifice for them and um and you showed no gratitude so, say, I'm, <laughs> so yeah i'm chucking it and i want to be a soap <laughs> operator um so luckily it you know this change also involved like a change of city so i kind of eased them into it i said that i was quitting my job because i wanted to live in new york and so i think I let them believe I was still going to be a lawyer, except it was just <laughs> going to happen in New York City. And instead of so it was, it wasn't until I was there for a while that I let on that I was kind of trying to pursue this other thing. And I got to say, though, I'm sure that was like, you know, a blow to them and more more because they were worried about me than than anything else. But um, I got to say they were super supportive from the beginning and it was never like, Oh, what have you done? We thought you were going to be an attorney and, and now you're going to do this. I mean, I, I had some panic because after nine months when nothing happened, you start to go, all right, what have I done? I've been living on people's couches and temping for nine months. And now how I'm going to get a job back as a lawyer is not going to be so easy. And there's tons of kids graduating from law school every year. And, and David Baldacci's on his third so- novel. <laughs> Exactly. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, all right, what am I going to do? I'm totally panicked. Like I, and then this thing just suddenly occurred. Okay. So now obviously you rose up the ranks and then you wind up being the head writer of One Life to Live. So what was that like for you? Yeah. I mean, it was pretty, you know, it was a, it was a process. I was there for 16 years or something. So I started as the assistant, but what was good was that, you know, when Claire came in and became my boss, she knew, of course, that I wanted to be a writer. So she encouraged me from the get-go. And so at first, I they let me write, like, I think it was one script a month. You know, most people write a script every week on, on the team. Um, they 
set up a deal for me where I could write once a month and still keep my job as the assistant. So there was like a year of me getting my feet wet and having, you know, my scripts get on the air. And then, um, eventually I think, um, Jill Phelps came, became the producer and she liked my scripts and she felt like I should be doing more. So they moved me out of the assistant job finally and made me like a full-time writer. And so, and then I really wanted to be on the, on the breakdown team as opposed to the script team, because, you know, the script writer is given an outline and they have to follow it. The breakdown writer has a little more, um, role in telling the story and deciding what's going to happen with the head writer. So, so after writing scripts for a while, I became a breakdown writer. So I was part of the team that sits around the table saying, you know, what's Vicky going to do this week? Um, so got to do that. And then I became what's called an associate head writer. And then I became the co-head writer. That was with Dina Higley. And then when she left, I became the full head writer. And that was like the last four years of the show, I think. So when you look back now at your One Life to Live years, like what stands out to you the most or what are the highlights for you? Wow. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I can remember as a script writer when I first started, like I said, I was doing like one a month and I got to write a day that was like, you know, Vicky and Dorian, um, you know, locked up somewhere arguing and then to watch it happen on television. I mean, having grown up on that show and how much I loved it and how much I loved those characters. And then to be able to turn on the show and hear my words coming out of their mouth was <laughs> pretty amazing, you know? Um, and then of course, eventually once, once you're the head writer, like then all the stories fall on you. Of course you have this great team and they're helping you, but you know, everyone is looking to you to like, what's going to happen next. So I would say, I mean, a few things. It was like the first year I was there, it was like our 10,000th episode, and I wrote Asa, uh, you know, the actor had passed away, and we decided that Asa should die, and I wrote those two shows myself. I mean, I wrote the outlines for those shows, and there was a scriptwriter who wrote the scripts, uh, but then that, so that was like my very first year as the head writer, and we won the Emmy, and that was amazing, because, <laughs> I, um, you know, one life was a little bit of the underdog a lot of times. Like, um, and so we hadn't won that award in a long time. So for it to be my first year as a head writer and come in and like, we won. And it was at the Kodak theater where they had the Oscars and like, you know, it was on ABC. It was live on television. It was an amazing, amazing time. And, um, and just all the stories that we got to do that they, you know, they let us do, you know, um, I love the story where Vicky um, went to Texas, became a waitress and quit her life, um, which I totally ripped off from like, you know, the TV show, Alice. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, um, you know, and we got, to, I got to create a whole little mini new world. We had new characters, the, you know, the Vicky and her coworkers and she had a new love interest and, you know, to see, the matriarch of the show, like slinging hash down in Texas was super fun. Like, I loved that. I loved our, um, we did the story that happened in 1968, you know, where Rex and Bo got struck by lightning and woke up in 1968 and 
had all the characters sort of played their ancestors and everything. That was super, I loved, I loved that story. Um, and then in that last year, you know, it was painful as it was to find out the show was being canceled. Um, they pretty much let us do whatever we wanted at that point, <laughs> you know, the net, the network knew the show was going off the air. They were like, not that they didn't still give notes and read, read it every week, but you know, they, they let us pretty much write what we wanted to write. And, and knowing that the show was ending as sad as it was, it gave you the opportunity of something that I don't get to do very often. Like, yeah, some stories have a beginning, middle and an end, but in general, the show just keeps going and going and going. This was like, Oh, we can put Vicky and Clint back together. And like we can put Natalie and John together. We can, you, you were allowed to wrap things up. And you could have a goal in mind and you knew where, you know, you knew where it was going as opposed to, oh, the story's going to blow up. And then I got to come up with another story tomorrow. Um, and I mean, and one of the things I love the most about the last few months of the show was that we told that parallel story that the characters found out that their favorite soap opera was being canceled, which was Fraternity Row, the, you know, a soap that had already been set up um, in the history of the show. And so we, we played the, you know, basically the characters were going through the same thing that the audience was going through because they found out that their favorite show was going off the air and we were able to sort of tell that story within a story. Um, and, and it was a great thing, I think, for, you know, all of the writers and everybody at the show to kind of exercise what we were feeling um, because we were all kind of in a mourning state and so, so were the characters. You know, it was such an interesting time and a sad time to be a fan and to be, you know, covering the industry uh, when One Life to Live was going off the air. Would would you have, like, done things differently at the end had this whole reboot going online thing hadn't been afoot at the time? Well, what happened was, I think... I'm trying to remember exactly how this played out, but I think what happened was we had written the show to this end point, knowing that we were in many ways going to tie it up in a nice bow. Right. Um, and then we found out that no, the show was going to continue online. And what they wanted was that our show was ending on a Friday. I think I'm not sure now, but I think our show was ending. whatever day our show was ending on ABC, it would start the very next day online and so they wanted us to have cliffhangers you know that, that that pulled you um you know into the show online so we changed a few things about the ending of the show so that there were a few more you weren't sure which way something was going to go whereas knowing the show was ending we wanted to you know give for the most part you know people to have like a happily ever after mm-hmm. um and I mean, actually, the sh- it always ended with we revealed that Trevor's Todd was was uh, who was Victor was alive and tied up to the bed with with Allison Perkins. That was still sort of a cliffhanger that wasn't going to get resolved because I what I liked was, yes, while at the same time, everything's tied up in a bow. It is a soap opera that in theory just goes on and on and on. So. I did want one thing to be left like a cliffhanger for the audience to imagine what happened next. 
And that was the surprise that, you know, Trevor St. John's character was alive. And that was the RMA. Um, but some of the other stories we had changed um, and that they were left a little more open-ended. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but then in the course of before we were done taping our final episodes, we had found out that they weren't going ahead at the time with the online version, they, um, for whatever reason. And so we kind of went back to all of our original endings, um, the different cliffhangers that I left. Um, we, we, we went back, back to the original. So what you saw on the air was pretty much what we originally wrote. And then you wound up in Port Charles. So now you go from One Life, which you grew up watching, to General Hospital, which you also grew up watching. Um, so what was that experience like just to yeah, even start I mean, writing these characters? That, yeah, that was pretty funny. I mean, because weirdly, even though One Life had become over the years, like my baby and my show, the first soap I ever watched was General Hospital. So I think I was like 10 years old. And like I said, my older sister and our babysitter, my, our babysitter lived across the street. She, we, she watched us for like an hour and a half until my mother got home from work. And so we'd get off the bus and we'd watch like the end of one life to live, like 10 minutes of it every day. And then we watched General Hospital. And so I was watching General Hospital when it was like, Rick and Monica and Alan and that love triangle there and like Luke and Laura and Bobby Spencer and all of those people and Heather Weber. (laughs) Um, My favorite story ever. So I was like, yes, Heather, when Heather kills Diana Taylor. Yes. Best best, story ever. Best story ever. Um, So I was watching that show when I was like 10 and, and then that's how I got into the other one slowly. um, One life and all my children. So then you know, one life goes off and I really, and then they found out we weren't going to be doing the online thing. And I had no idea what I was going to do after that. And I can remember I was driving and I was in the city, but I drove my friend's mom to the doctor. And so I'm driving on park Avenue and my phone rings and it was Frank Valentini. And he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I'm driving down Park Avenue. And he goes, pull over. And I'm like, okay. So I pull over to the side and I go, what? And he said, um, I'm the new executive producer of General Hospital and you're going to be the new head writer. <laughs> so, so, like, wow. Okay, I guess I know what I'm doing now. <laughs> um, so, and it was, there was this weird overlap because I think we were still, I think when I, when we found out, I was still at One Life to Live. Frank was definitely still producing the rest of One Life to Live. I think we had written it all, but I was still, like, reading the scripts and making little changes. So, like, um, but anyway, they had sort of, they hired me and then essentially wanted to give me, like, this period of time, like, to get to know the show. And I'm like, yeah, 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 that's not going to be necessary. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know this show. I know the show. Um, so I started right away and I, I think the first episodes that I wrote, I was still in the office. I wouldn't like to live, um, right in general hospital. And like, basically I went into general hospital, just like, I'm just going to write what I know as much as I guess I did follow it over the years and saw how it evolved and changed. Um, 
essentially, I just said, I'm going to write what I know. So I did bring Heather Weber back right away. And we did bring, you know, Anna back and Lucy Coe and, you know, Bobby was hardly ever seen and, and Scotty and all those characters. So I just kind of went with the people that I knew best, you know, and then got to know all the others as well and, and wove it together. But, um, it, there was definitely like a change there. Cause I don't think people were used to seeing the same people that I used to watch. And so I sort of brought them into the forefront and that was really fun for me to be able to, um, to write for all those characters. Do you have a favorite story from your time there? From General Hospital? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a little bit of a blur. Um, <laughs> um, the, I mean, like I said, I think a lot of it was like, was being able to bring a lot of those people back. Like, you know, that I like, you know, revisiting things like the Ice Princess and, I would say like bringing back the nurses ball was like a huge thrill to be able to do. Um, cause they hadn't, you know, that was a thing that, you know, was so important to the fans and I used to love and, and for various reasons over the years, they kind of stopped doing it. And I was like, Oh, what if we, let's bring that back. You know, what's Lucy co up to, um, like bringing her on, um, was, was really fun. Um, it was fun to weave like the one, the one life to live people on to the show. Cause that was like, again, got complicated later because of the online show. But at first I thought, wow, um, you've got all these fans missing these other two shows. Why don't we bring some of those people on, on to general hospital? And, um, and the tricky thing was at the time, ABC <laughs> didn't have the rights to those characters. So we had to make a deal with the people who did. And so I could only use a little handful of people with the understanding if, if, if they decide to go ever ahead with the online show that they would, I'd have to give them up. And so, um, but at the time, no one really thought that was going to happen because they had the rights for like a year. They had said they weren't doing it. Months and months had gone by we assumed the online thing was dead. And so I thought, Oh, is this year was just about to expire. And then really the floodgates would have opened and we could have used anybody we wanted from all my children or one life to live. Um, so, but you know, they, they all of a sudden announced, no, they were doing it. And so, um, we had Todd and John McBain and star, I think, and we had used Blair a little bit and Taya a little bit, but we had to sort of exit them off the show kind of abruptly, um, which, you know, was within their right. Cause that was the deal that we, you know, that we made. Um, but it was fun to sort of like, to me, it was like, I've also grew up on comic books and like when they would do crossovers or um, I always loved that. So seeing like, Oh my God, you know, Carly meet Todd or, you know, to cross these characters, you know, John McBain is suddenly with Sam, but there's this whole other layer because, you know, they had a relationship on Port Charles that, you know, so that was all really fun to be able to do. And then you wound up in Salem where you are today. So tell us about getting the call from days and what it was like to go to a show now that you didn't have any history with. 
Yeah, so that was a lot different. Like I said, you know, called me and say, hey, come right General Hospital. I'm like, okay, I'll be there Monday. I know what Monica's going to be doing. But, <laughs> um, but when they called and said, um, you know, they were interested in having me come to write Days of Our Lives, the look, any, I feel like any soap fan, kind of, even if you don't watch all these shows, I mean, you guys obviously, because you do it for a living. But even any fan, I think, knows the other shows a little bit by osmosis, be it from Soap Opera Digest or be it from, you know, whatever it is. Like, there's I knew. There's no other source of even information. If Soap Opera Digest no, only. No, there's only that one. There's only that <laughs> one. That's the, because, of, because of you guys, I knew who Marlena was and I knew who Stefano was and I knew who Bo and Hope were and Patch and Kayla were like, so I knew all those names and I generally knew who they were and who was good and who was bad and what their jobs were. Um, but not knowing the, all the, the ins and outs of the relationships and the history and who's related to who, how, and I got to say soaps in general are complicated. This one is especially complicated. It's like every person is related to each other on this show. Um, and then you and have Julian Hope. More- <laughs> yeah, it starts with them. I said, okay, so what's the deal? That's her her mother, right? And they're like, well, no, that's her mother, but it's also her sister. Right? <laughs> Wait, what? You know, so, and then basically everybody is somebody's cousin on the show. So if you ask, oh, how are JJ and Claire related? Oh, they're cousins. Or, you know, everyone... Everybody on the show is somebody's cousin, and they're usually related more than one way. So they'll be like, oh, well, that's her niece and her cousin, you know. It's her niece, and, cousin, and stepdaughter, you know, so no, they can't uh, They can't date. <laughs> well, and what's so funny is, like, you know, like, you look at Claire and Sierra, and they seem like, you know, peers or sisters or cousins, <laughs> but they're really... They're really niece and aunt. Right. <laughs> and it's so bizarre, you know, to be like, well, Auntie Sierra, like, <laughs> and they're, you know, fighting over the same boy. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting that Days, I think, has that so much because they have kept the same families, you know, and the same characters, yeah. same, so many veterans. That's like, you know, an, a, a byproduct of that. It's, you know, a, a good and a bad problem, I guess, for a writer. No, definitely good and bad. It's like, look, it's what's amazing is they have these legacy people around for so long. Like, you know, you come in, those characters have like the longevity is amazing with the Hortons and the Brady's and the Kyriakis and the Damaris. But obviously over the years, it's like everybody's gotten together with everybody. So all these people, a lot of these people are related in a way. Like I came in, I was like, oh, you got some young people here oh, J.J. can't be paired with Claire or Sierra because he's related to both of them. So, <laughs> um, and then, so that's where, like, this, this team comes in because I basically have almost the same team that was there in place when I got the job. And, and they've, a lot of them, have written this show for years. So that's what saved my life, whereas before I could turn, you know, I, my own head was an encyclopedia for One Life and for General Hospital. But here, I can just turn to my team, and they'll tell me, no, you can't put these two people together. They're brother and sister. So, um, but what will happen is you just kind of, I'll say, so what's the deal? What was the story with Roman and John? And then they'll just start explaining it to you, and then the next thing you know, like, you've got the whole thing. And then 15 you're like, hours well, later. And wait a minute. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like, no, 
Hope is Princess Gina or Princess Gina is a separate person? They're like, well, both. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right. If we quizzed you right now, we're like, tell us the difference between Hope, Gina and Princess Gina. Could you tell us? Would you need to phone you a friend? Know, the thing is, I'm always, there's definitely days where I'm in the writer's room and I'm like afraid to say something to be like, <laughs> oh, I'm going to, it's not going to be correct. <laughs> I'm going to be like, wait, or sometimes I do kind of forget. I'm like, oh, right. Stefano and Andre are brothers. No, no, no. Andre is Stefano's son. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, like, but, you know, once once the precedent is set that you can be somebody's sister and their mother. Um, right. All bets are off. You know, it kind of all bets are off. I mean, but I, I mean, and another thing about days that really what's fun for me to write is like it does have in addition to sort of its regular soap opera history of regular soap opera family stories. It also has this crazy period <laughs> where people were getting possessed by the devil and chips were planted in their heads and right up your and, alley, you know? Yeah. So all that crazy stuff is in the DNA of the show. And it's something that the audience knows and loves and, and like, will go with you on. So what I was able to do is come in and tell, you know, heartwarming family stories or romance stories, but at the same time, you could have a doppelganger or you could have a baby switch or you could have amnesia or you could have back from the dead and the audience can accept it and go with you. So to that point, you join the show, you tell this incredible story with the Theo shooting, you know, brings in the Carvers, it brings in the Hortons, brings in the whole town. And then in April, the show gets multiple Emmys, never mind one for you, one for the show itself. And one for the directing team, which had not happened in many, many, decades. many, many yeah. decades. Um, so how did that feel for you on Emmy night to just this is your new show and you have this amazingly, I imagine, an amazing high? Yeah, no, I mean, it really was. I mean, similarly, like I was talking about at One Life to Live to come in and was like my first year as the head writer and we won the Emmy. It was an unbelievable feeling. And then you know, to just dive in head first to this show that I didn't know. And it's got this crazy schedule where you're writing six or seven months ahead. So I wrote in a vacuum for months. My, you know, I started writing in January and my first episode aired in July, you know, so you don't know how the audience is going to respond to it. Like you're writing on faith that whole time, or you're writing, you know, from your gut instincts all that time. So it wasn't until July that my stuff started to air and I was, you know, in general seemed like a positive response from people. And also I think people were, you know, people like change or they want things to be shaken up. And definitely I came in and, and, and changed the canvas around. Um, so, but again, you really have no idea until it airs and, and how it's going to get received. And, and like you guys pointed out, we, we tried to have like a, a balance of stories. We had this police shooting, but we, you know, I also had two doppelgangers and we also had Will Horton coming back from the dead. So, um, to me had sort of every aspect of what's so great about soaps. And then, um, like you said, cut to April. And of course you're always hopeful, but days has not had any success in a long time. So you really go in with your expectations, really, really managed and really low. And 
than to just one after the next, after the next, you know, when we won directing off the bat and then, um, I think we won next for the writing. Um, and then Greg Vaughn won and Jim Reynolds won. And then the show, then it wasn't until that point that I was like, I think we might win this show, which was not <laughs> even in my mind at all, but you kind of felt like we're on a roll. Um, and that was so great because yes, while it was great for personally thrilling for me to win, it made it so much nicer that it wasn't like, Oh, just the writers won or just this one actor won. It was a huge night of celebration for the show. I mean, we won five major awards. It made it, you know, I won't forget that soon. And, uh, you know, to be at that party with, you know, Ken Corday and Bruce Evans, like, you know, celebrating our success and, and, and giving me a lot of the credit for it too was an amazing, amazing feeling. It was a very cool night. Um, Ron, you know, I want to go back to this thing about writing for days uh, at this point that is so different from the other shows that you've worked on, which is this whole writing so far in advance business. I'm sure you've, you know, kind of adjusted to that as your new reality. Um, do you prefer working this way? Do you wish that the lead time was shorter? You know, what is your relationship to that reality this far into your time well, at days? Weirdly, the the sort of technical aspects of the show, it's like the from the writing to the taping is almost the same as it is at the other show. So in other words, I write it now. It doesn't mean they're filming it in six months. Mm-hmm. They're still filming it in a few more weeks. So I write the, I write with my team. We write the breakdown. The next week, the scripts get written. The scripts come in. They get edited. The directors meet on them, and then they get taped. So there's whatever that few weeks of a gap in there. So we're on that same schedule. It's just that then when we shoot the show, it's just sitting finished on a shelf <laughs> for six months. Um, so the process is the same. I don't. I can't just sort of. Like, oh, put my feet up because we're six months ahead. Basically, the production side is always sitting there waiting for those, you know, I always say like, you know, it's like baby birds with their mouths open, like waiting for scripts, <laughs> you know? So like, you, 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 you can't stop because then they have nothing to shoot. And they shoot eight shows a week, so they need all these shows. Um, where it does get, you know, tricky is like you – is is you is the audience response or you decide, Oh, this isn't working or the, the thing airs and people are like, Oh my God, I hate this. Like, well, you got six months of it. So <laughs> pull up there. <laughs> um, so, so that stuff you can't really change. And it's also odd. Just like right now I'm writing whatever June of next year right now. And it's really strange. The other day I had to go to the DMV to get my license renewed and it says bring a, a recent bank statement that shows your, your, your address on it. And I was sitting there working, and I was trying to grab all these documents real quick. I had, you know, passports, social security card, bank statement. And it said a recent one. So I pull up. I look at the front of it. I go, oh, yeah, that's recent. I go to the DMV. I wait and wait and wait. I finally get called up. I give them all the documents. The guy goes, oh, I can't accept this. And I said, why not? And he says, this, this is, this is 120, more than 120 days old. And I'm like, no, this is last month. That's April. And this is May, September. 
I was writing May <laughs> at the time. I was writing May, so when I pulled the thing out of my drawer and it said April on the top, I'm like, oh, that's a recent fact. Recent. That's and so funny. And they don't make exceptions like, oh, for the day's head writer? They don't no. they know? I said, well, it's May in Salem. <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's I need to speak to the to mayor. But it, no, that's what's weird because I'm always like, wait, are they, are they wearing a coat? Is it Christmas? Is it, you know, <laughs> it's like so strange like i said we're writing like next summer right now and we're you know in, in november here have there been things where based on feedback you would have pulled back on certain things or maybe ramped up certain storylines i mean not really i mean i gotta say in general yes being a little bit closer ahead you could make a decision more in the moment but like yes i have an audience that i aim to please but again like they don't dictate the story. I have to tell the story. I have to go from what it's my instinct. You know, this is our attempt as a show to entertain you. You know, the everyone has because if I start listening to one person, somebody else has the exact opposite opinion. You know, so if someone says, look, I love what you're doing, but I hate so and so you got to stop that. But then one second later, somebody's telling me how much they love that. So when you start trying to get in the audience's head and be like, I'm trying to please them. You know, it's kind of a losing proposition. And oftentimes too, because the audience is passionate about the the characters and, and a lot of times about couples. And so if I'm doing something that is, you know, making a couple unhappy, you know, it is often met with, why can't you just let these, why can't you let these two be happy? <laughs> and I'm like, well, because it's my job to throw obstacles at them. And, and have you try watched to, you know, um, Yeah, exactly. So, yes, I get it. You want people to be happy. You want to see love. You want to see romance. And yes, you can tell a story with it's like there's a couple of ways to tell a story for a couple. Uh, there's an obstacle, either a person trying to come between them, a thing trying to come between them, something that's splitting them up. Someone's going to cheat on someone. Or it's you and me against the world story where okay, somebody has the sickness or, or someone's trying to take something from the two of you and you're, you're, you're fighting together against the common thing, whatever that is. So, but soaps are made up of both things. So there's obviously going to be times when this couple that you love is getting torn to pieces. That's my job. And then I put them back together. So what would you say now, looking back on your time so far in days is your proudest moment or what stands out to you now about days? Wow. Um, that's a tough one. I mean, I, 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 I will say that, that like coming in and, and, and like, I basically came in with like three stories that I pitched. And again, that grows in, you know, three become 12 because there's all these little offshoots, but I really came in with the police shooting the, what I call double trouble, which was Bonnie and Marlena, uh, you know, Hattie, Patty, Bonnie, Marlena, and Adrian, and then Will Horton coming back from the dead. And like the, they were all types of, you know, it was three different kinds of stories. I got to play the whole canvas. You know, I really got to play the family relationships, but it'll still play a lot of this campy over the top stuff. Like, you know, in my first big storyline, I got to bring Sammy back to the show. I got to bring Eileen Davidson onto the show. Like, it was pretty huge, you know, to be able, you know, and those things is sort of like the stars just kind of aligned for me at that moment. Like 
I knew that Ali had left the show and I'm like, well, we can't tell Will coming back without Sammy, you know, and she agreed to come back. And then when we needed the, you know, the Susan aspect, Eileen agreed to come back and, um, like to be able to do all of that and, and to have it all be so well received and see the show, you know, see a turnaround, see the ratings go up, see people online be excited about the show, see the magazines. I think, uh, is there more than one or is it just so up production? Oh, um, oh, I don't know. The, <laughs> to see, you know, what the press, the fans, the, you know, have it show in the ratings, have, you know, it's, it's so gratifying. I mean, the thing is you, you can't rely on all that all the time because, you know, ratings go up, they're going to go down. Fans are going to love something. They're going to hate something, but you know, it's certainly more fun and certainly more enjoyable and certainly more gratifying when, when people are enjoying what you're doing, you know, instead of writing you to tell you how much they hate it. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you're getting so, my mail. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, it's, it's really, it's been really, really exciting. And I'm, and to have, you know, support from the cast and the crew. Um, I don't go that out that much, you know, I write the show from New York and almost my entire team is in LA except for a couple of the writers. And, um, you know, so sometimes I can still be writing in a bubble, like home at my desk and everything, but, you know, I do try to travel out there you know, periodically. And it's great to touch base with the, with, you know, not just the producers, but to go on the set and actually get to see the actors doing what they're doing sort of right there live. Um, and, and that is always a great thing too. You're like, Oh wow, those two are really great together. I didn't really notice that, you know, um, before. So it, it, it has been really great. And I mean, um, it, I'm coming up on, you know, it'll be two years in January that I've been here. So it's really kind of flown by in a lot of ways. That's kind of crazy, actually, to think that it's been that long. Um, now, we uh, the show has announced that Matthew Ashford is returning. Um, anything you can tease about Jack coming back and or will we be seeing other surprise returns? Yes. I mean, you know that I love a good return. So <laughs> like I talked about Sammy and I talked about, you know, Susan and Kristen and all that and um, and, you know, we just had Nicole return. We had Xander return. We, yes, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see another couple of like returns pop up sort of unexpectedly. Um, you know, having those people like in your toy box that you can just be like, Oh, what if Bell and Sean show up for this? Or, um, is, is really great to be able to do. So, yeah, look, um, we we had, you know, they were, the show had been talking about bringing Jack back when I first got on the show. And then, you know, I came in with three big stories and there was, they, we put the Jack thing to the side for the moment. And, you know, once I got my feet wet and we were in the groove and then it was like, well, should we revisit this idea of Jack coming back? Like, you know, Jack and Jennifer are such a popular pairing and, um, but, you know, how are we going to do it? And then we finally came up with like an idea of, you know, how exactly would he come back? And, and, and so um, we set it up a little bit um, in 
the story that we just did with Kristen and Xander having that sort of warehouse full of people. <laughs> um, and so we look, we were telling a story about Nicole and possibly about EJ, but we, I wanted it to feel like Kristen had a bigger master plan. So, you know, I came up with the idea that there were all these other doors with, with initials on them and let the audience get excited about who that may or may not be, especially because we've already established that this theorem existed, you know, and so there was the possibility of bringing somebody back from the brink of death. Um, and there was quite a debate about those initials. I can tell you that, but, um, <laughs> but, um, and we put JD on there because we knew that Jack was someone that we were talking about bringing back. And, um, so it, it yes, it does tie to that story, but, um, you know, we bring him back in a pretty exciting way. And, um, you know, it doesn't, as, as, as you can imagine on a soap opera, he doesn't just walk in the door and have a romantic reunion with Jennifer. And then they sit on the couch telling each other how much they love each other all day. Um, <laughs> it's a journey. And so, um, but it is, it's like, it's a fun, it's a fun ride. So it, it is coming up in the near future. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure I'll be talking more about that story when it's closer to uh, closer to being on on the air. But um, it, it's been fun to write, and um, um, yeah, that's what that's what's happening. In awesome. Cool. Well, we can't wait. Thank you so much for all your time today and for chatting with us. And come back again soon. Cool. All right. All right. Bye, Ron. All right. Bye, guys. All right. Bye. Thank you for joining us. Thank you to Ron Carlovati for being our guest. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com.